Milk is a secretion that female mammals make that is designed to feed their babies. Never intended that as adults, we would be drinking our own milk, let alone the milk of another species. That was Dr. Milton Mills, and this is Bananas. Welcome back to another episode of This Is Bananas. But real quick, I just want to say a big thank you to everyone who has supported this podcast. It's sponsors using the Amazon links, showing your love and support on social media. Big, big thank you. But I do want to ask if you have a minute, please, please, please head on over to Apple Podcasts and drop me a five-star review if you really like this podcast, if you get something out of it, if you appreciate the work that I'm doing. It will really help the podcast rank better and ultimately get the word out, get this message of plant-based eating and healthy living out to more people. Also, I'm loving the feedback that I'm getting from you guys about the FitBot app that I keep promoting. It seems like it's helping a lot of you guys, so I'll definitely keep mentioning it here and there, but if you guys don't know what FitBot is, it's an app that lets you track and monitor your progress in the gym, creates custom workouts for you based on your experience, the available equipment that's available to you, the amount of time that you wanna work out, the type of workouts that you wanna do, whether you're trying to do more bodybuilding stuff, powerlifting, if you just want general fitness. And one of my favorite things is that it takes into account what Strava is telling it. So because I'm a cyclist, I ride my bike quite often. And so it takes into consideration the cardio that I do on Strava. And so FitBod is not going to give me like a leg workout after I do a heavy ride. But yeah, if you guys want to check out FitBod, head on over to app.fitbod.me app.fitbod.me and use the discount code Bananiac, B-A-N-A-N-I-A-C and you guys will receive an awesome discount. I also did make a full-on review on my YouTube channel, Bananiac. So if you guys you know, are hesitant of giving it a try, you guys can always watch the review for free on my YouTube channel. But anyway, let's get right into this episode. So throwback to February of this year. I went out to DC at like 11 o'clock p.m. at night and I went into the United Medical Center, which is a hospital that Dr. Milne Mills works at. So if you guys don't know who Dr. Milne Mills is, he's a medical doctor. He works at the critical care department at the United Medical Center. He's also been featured in the very famous film, What the Health? And ultimately, he's just a very knowledgeable man. He knows a lot about plant-based nutrition. He knows a lot about the science. And he's just simply awesome to be around and to talk to. So if you guys ever see him at veg fests and vegan festivals and things like that, he often gives talks and lectures. Feel free to go up to him. He's a very, very approachable and cool guy. In this episode, we talk about quite a few topics. So we bring up vitamin B12, a common concern for vegans, talk about omega-3, whether carbohydrates are causing people to become obese and diabetic. We talk about the dangers of animal protein as well as dairy. So a really cool talk. Listen up because you don't want to miss this information. Hey guys, we're here with uh, Dr. Milton Mills. Um, We're at the United Medical Center. And um, I have some questions for Dr. Mills. Um, maybe you can help share some insight for people 
who are just starting out um, sure. going vegan and, and adopting a plant-based diet. I want to get your thoughts on carbohydrates. There seems to be this notion that um, it's the cause to the diabetes right. and obesity epidemic. What What are your thoughts on that? One of the most pernicious trends in a sort of modern nutrition is this low-carb foolishness. Um, and uh, people think that they're actually doing something that's good for them um, by um, going low-carb, uh, but they aren't because our bodies need carbs. Every day, 25% of the energy you burn is used up by your brain alone. The human brain only weighs three pounds, but uses 25% of the energy we burn every day. And it's all in the form of sugar. So, uh, or, and, you know, carbohydrates, glucose, that's what the brain uses. And that's why when people who have diabetes, if their blood sugar level goes too low, they will go into a coma because the brain cannot function without it. So our bodies are designed to utilize starch, utilize carbohydrates. The problem comes when we take in the wrong types of carbohydrates, and, and I'll explain that in a minute. But the fact is that human beings are so adapted to a starch-based diet that we actually have six times more starch-digesting enzymes than any other primate. The problem that with carbs is the fact that in most Western countries, people are eating processed carbs. And right. by processed carbs, what I mean is they're eating refined sugar and they're eating grains that have had their fiber removed. So instead of eating like, uh, you know, whole grain rice, like brown rice or wild rice, we take the fiber out and we eat white rice. Instead of eating whole wheat, uh, we, um, turn it into white flour. And the problem is that once you take the fiber out of a plant food, the starch can be broken down and absorbed so quickly, it's like eating pure sugar. And what that will do is it'll cause a spike in insulin levels. And it's true that if your insulin levels are constantly elevated, it prevents your body from burning fat. And so what ends up happening is that that can promote weight gain. But it's even a little worse because when you actually look at what Westerners are eating, they're eating refined carbohydrates that are loaded with grease. So the brain is craving carbohydrates because that's what it needs to run itself on. And it tells us, hey, go eat, go stoke up on some carbohydrate. But what do we do? We go out and we eat, um, um, you know, something like a donut, which is white flour and grease and insulin level, uh, sugar level spikes, insulin goes up, sugar level goes down. And then suddenly we find ourselves hungry again. And instead of eating the uh, um, high starch foods that our brain really and our body really want, we're eating proportionately more grease, which ends up going straight into our fat cells. So again, that promotes weight gain. And so what some, again, very um, poorly informed individuals have suggested is that, oh, well, if you eliminate the carbs, it'll help you burn weight. And, and that's true to an extent. Because it kind of puts the body on a starvation economy and, and you have to burn protein, and which is, again, very stressful from a metabolic standpoint. Um, and studies have shown over time that low-carb diets are associated with higher risk for chronic disease, um, actually 
um, poor performance on tests of mental function, which makes sense because you're not giving the brain what it needs. And it also is associated with a greater risk of all-cause mortality. When patients ask me about these low-carb diets, I'm like, okay, yeah, maybe you'll lose some weight, but what's the point of leaving, leaving a thin corpse? It's much better to eat whole plant foods. And that's why this term has come into use, whole food plant-based diet. Because what it's telling you is that you, you, know, you can eat donuts, potato chips, Coca-Cola, and be plant-based. But it's a horrible and unhealthy way to be plant-based. You need to be eating whole plant foods because those plant foods have fiber in them. And it turns out that the absorption, that when carbohydrates are surrounded by fiber, they're in a sense protected. And that actually modulates the absorption of the carbohydrate, prevents your blood sugar levels from spiking too high, but it also prevents them from falling rapidly. And so it keeps your blood sugar level in a, a more stable range. You don't get hungry as often. Your brain is happy. Your body is happy. And the fiber does all sorts of wonderful things when it gets to the colon and gets broken down by the bacteria in the colon. And that's why one of the most exciting new areas uh, in uh, uh, human physiology research is looking at the microbiome. That is the makeup of the bacteria in our colons, because we're now understanding that they need fiber to do all of the great things for us that they could be doing. But that is a subject for another video. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it sounds like maybe people are just um, confused about carbohydrates in general. They think of like donuts when they really should be thinking about potatoes and, and whole grains. Exactly. And whole plant foods. Absolutely. Right. That, that, and even potatoes. Um, you, you know, when most people think of potatoes, they think of russet potatoes. But russet potatoes are essentially obese potatoes. They are potatoes that have been selected for through uh, selective breeding to be just loaded with starch. And so their starch to fiber ratio is thrown off. It's much better if you're going to use potatoes to use the smaller varieties like the gold, the Yukon gold or the red uh, uh, potatoes. And if you cut into those potatoes, you'll notice that their flesh has a more waxy texture as compared to the sort of dry crumbling texture of, of a uh, russet. And that's because they have a much higher fiber content. And so they have a much better impact on our physiology because of the fiber that's in these potatoes. And the same is true of like sweet potatoes and yams, yucca, and so forth. Those other root vegetables have a lot of fiber in them. And so even though they have uh, uh, carbohydrates, that carbohydrate absorption is modulated by the starch, gives you a much better health profile. So again, the thing to remember about carbs is all carbs are not equal. The bad carbs are um, the processed carbs that have the, had the fiber removed. The good carbs are the whole plant foods that have the fiber in them. I do a lecture uh, on um, uh, chemistry for understanding nutrition, looking at carbohydrates, and I compare it to Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. If you remember the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Dr. Jekyll was this wonderful uh, physician who uh, did great things for people and and when he was his normal self, was a good doctor. But for some crazy reason, he concocted this potion that when he drank it, turned him into this monster called Mr. Hyde, who went around killing people. Well, that's very similar to what we do 
with plant foods. Plant foods in their normal natural state are loaded with fiber, the, uh, have good sources of carbohydrate, very healthy for us. But when we get our hands on them and we modify them and turn them into the nutritional version of Mr. Hyde, that's when they become bad for us and start to damage our health. Exactly. Yeah. No, that's, that's a good point. Um, we want to start thinking about food in, in terms of whole and process. I think right. that's, that's the key message and it's, it's really important. Um, right. And to, and to try to avoid, avoid refined sugars, you know, as, as much as possible. Now, everybody's going to have the occasional piece of cake sure. or the occasional pie or, you know, something like a dessert. You know, again, it, you know, if, if you have it on your birthday or, you know, um, um, at, you know, a special dinner party, that's not a problem. But when you're swilling down sodas all day, drinking lots of uh, refined juices or eating lots of candy and lots of sweets, uh, that's when uh, you start to really throw your physiology off and it becomes very unhealthy. So you want to avoid not only the processed carbs, but also the refined sugars. Let me get your thoughts on omega-3s. That seems to be a, a really hot topic that um, if you go on a vegan or a plant-based diet, that you're not going to be able to get enough omega-3s. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, this is another thing that makes me want to jump off the building. Um, there are very good sources uh, plant sources of omega-3. Well, let me just kind of give a sort of a, a, a little vignette about uh, so-called fish oils, because all these companies are touting, oh, fish oils, fish oils, fish oils as the best source of omega-3s, right? Well, what they don't tell you is that those aren't really fish oils. They're oils that are made by plants, the algae in the ocean. And the only reason that they're in the fish is because, you know, um, Algae grow, little co cocoa pods and, and shrimp eat the algae. Then a smaller fish comes along, eats the shrimp, stores those uh, algae-derived oils in its body. The bigger fish comes along and eats the little fish. And so you get concentration of these uh, um, uh, plant fats in the fish. The fish didn't make them. The plant, the algae did. So they are plant-derived fats. And you can actually... Um, if, uh, go online and find vegan uh, sources of algae-derived omega-3 fatty acids. But there's omega-3 fat, um, uh, fats and walnuts, soybeans, green leafy vegetables, and uh, uh, legumes, and a whole host of plant foods. Again, the problem in Western countries is that we have too much of uh, the refined omega-6 fats in our body, and that actually prevents our bodies from utilizing omega-3s uh, effectively. So the point is that there are excellent sources of uh, uh, omega-3s in plant foods, but you also need to limit the amount of added oils and refined oils in your body because those are typically the omega-6 um, fatty acids, which tend to be uh, pro-inflammatory, and you want to avoid that. Yeah, and I like to tell people um, they should keep their ratios of omega-6 to 3 and a 4 to 1. And exactly. Kind of not let it get too high. Right, whereas the typical American diet, it's 10 to 20 to 1. <laughs> Which is just ridiculous. Yes, yeah. and that's why everybody has got you know got fibromyalgia and headaches and joint pains because the level of inflammation in our body is ramped up by all of this added oil. Right, right. And I, and I like what you said before of um, 
you were kind of saying that we should be going for the source instead of kind of like these other fish eating the other fish. And, oh. and First of all, fish oils are so laden with toxins that it, it, it's, it is a horrible, first of all, no one should be eating it, period. Because it's, it's again, it's, uh, it's getting back to the oxygen and cigarette smoke analogy. Yeah, there may be omega-3s in it, but there's so much other garbage, you don't want uh, to, to, to eat it. And, right. you know, Again, another way I try to help people conceptualize this is that you know that a sewage waste plant basically takes all of the stool and stuff that people flush down their toilets, emulsifies it, and dumps it into the water. Well, if I went to a sewage waste plant and took a piece of food and dragged it through that uh, emulsified sewage and offered it to you, you would probably punch me. I mean, nobody would eat that. Well, what people don't understand is that all of that emulsified sewage and other toxic substances that we dump into the ocean, fish breathe by filtering that stuff. So that's why their bodies are so full of things like mercury and dioxins and other toxic substances because they have to filter all of that filthy water to breathe and those toxins get taken up and stored into their bodies. And so for toxins alone, Fish is uh, 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 something that we should not be eating. But the other thing to remember, it's also animal protein. And it does the same kinds of bad things to our internal organs that land animal protein does. Right. Yeah, that's, that's a very good point. Um, just uh, one more follow-up question on mm -hmm. omega-3s. I want to ask you, a lot of people bring up um, DHAs, which is sure. only from animal sources. So I want to get your thoughts on, on that. Yeah. So most plant sources of omega-3 uh, fatty acids are 18 carbon long. DHA is a 22 carbon fatty acid and EPA is a 20 carbon. Well, animals take these plant um, um, uh, oils and, and they can, or the 18 carbon uh, uh, fatty acids and they elongate them to the 20 and 22 uh, uh, length uh, fatty acids. So our bodies will make enough of our own EPA and DHA if we are, one, getting a good source of omega-3s from plants, but most importantly, if we are not ingesting too much omega-6. Because it turns out that the rate-limiting enzyme in processing both omega-6 fatty acids and omega-3 fatty acids is the same enzyme. And so if you have an overwhelming amount of the omega-6, you essentially crowd out the omega-3 and your body doesn't have the opportunity to turn it into those long chain uh, uh, omega-3 amino acids. Yeah. I, I'm sorry, I said amino acids, I meant fatty acids. No, no, that's that's perfect. And, and that's a good point is definitely stay away from the oils, vitamin B12. A lot of people kind of use this argument that we should not be on a plant-based diet. It's not in plants. What are your thoughts? <laughs> Yeah. Um, next to what about your protein? They say, well, what about B12? Well, what about it? I mean, you know, what about cancer? What about heart disease? What about autoimmune disease? What about diabetes? I mean, you know, it, it's like you want to bring up B12. Our bodies only need like one microgram of B12 a day, the equivalent of that. Of that. Well, number one, the first thing that people need to understand, B12 is only made by bacteria. No plant, no animal makes B12. If you find B12 in animal tissues, it's because it's gotten it from a bacterial source, ultimately. Well, 
if we were living in more natural environments, drinking unprocessed water and eating foods that we duck up out of the ground, because that food would have bacteria on it, it would have B12. There would be B12 in the water. But what do we do? We take we, uh, our water and we process it and we throw chlorine in it. We kill all the bacteria. We have eliminated the natural sources of B12 in our environment. So that's why we have to take it. It's kind of similar to, to um, the calciferol issue. Because we're always covered up and indoors, we can't make enough of our own calciferol. So we have to take a supplement. Well, because we've eliminated our exposure to bacteria, we have to take the supplement. But that has nothing to do with the, uh, uh, a problem with a uh, plant-based diet. That's an artifact of the way we live. Kind of one of the oldest uh, attacks on plant-based eating is that, oh my God, you're going to end up protein deficient. Nothing could be further from the truth if you're eating a well-planned diet. First of all, all plant cells have protein in them, but some are more concentrated than others. So typically your concentrated sources of plant protein are your grains, corn, wheat, rice, quinoa, which actually quinoa is a legume, but it's treated as a grain. And then you have your legumes, beans, peas, lentils, and then nuts, cashews, walnuts, almonds, pistachios, pecans. All nuts are very good sources of concentrated protein. The one issue with the nuts is that they tend to have higher fat content, so you have to be judicious in your intake. And then you get to your more dilute sources of protein, and those are your vegetables. Green leafy vegetables, broccoli, kale, cauliflower, carrots, you name it. And then also root vegetables also have protein on them, you know, potatoes, sweet potatoes, turnips, and so forth. But again, those also tend to be more dilute because they have a higher water content. So if, if somebody is eating a varied plant-based diet that includes legumes, grains, vegetables, fruits, as long as they're getting adequate calories, it is almost impossible to become protein deficient. That's just a, a myth. I'll say that with one caveat. There has been a few occasions where I've talked to someone who said, oh, you know, I tried to go plant-based or I tried to become a vegetarian, but I found that I had no energy and then I was you know, weak and, and I started losing a lot of weight. And so I asked them, well, what were you eating? And they'll say, well, I was eating a lot of broccoli and stir fry and salads. Well, the problem with that is that those are vegetables that have very high water content, a lot of fiber, but are not your concentrated calorie and protein sources. I mean, essentially kind of the food that a rabbit can subsist on, but a human being, because we're such large animals, we need a lot more calories, we need more concentrated protein sources. The one issue is that people need to make sure they're eating from all of the various categories of uh, plant foods, and then protein intake is not a problem. And I can't stress this enough that the largest, strongest land animals on this planet are all strict planters. Elephants, rhinos, giraffes, hippos, cows, moose, deer, so on. And I also point out to people that Western civilization was built on the back of herbivores. You know, when we needed to pull plows or lift, you know, the like the stones that they used to make the cathedrals in Europe via pulleys, we didn't hitch those, those machines up. Uh, are the plows and the pulleys and, and so forth up to lions, tigers, and bears. We hitch them to horses and oxen because it's only the plant eaters that have the strength and the stamina to do the kind of work it took to build Western civilization. So there is more than enough protein in plant foods. As I often point out to people, all protein is initially made by plants. Any protein you find in animal tissues is actually 
recycled plant protein. So you don't need to have animal protein. And not only don't you need it, but you shouldn't have it because animal protein is toxic to our systems in a lot of ways. It damages the kidneys and can accelerate loss of kidney function, damages our blood vessels and can promote the development of atherosclerosis and heart disease. And it's also been linked to a number of different cancers. So animal protein is not only is it not necessary, it is healthier to avoid it. I actually have a detailed lecture called are humans designed to eat meat, which is a comparative anatomy study looking at mammalian carnivores, mammalian herbivores, and then humans to show that we have the jaw structure, the dental complement, the digestive tract, and the physiology of a committed herbivore. As I said before, animal protein actually causes a lot of problems in our physiology if it's ingested over a long period of time, which is why diets that are high in animal foods are associated with higher levels of chronic disease and also earlier death. Around the world, studies show that the more plant-based the diet, the greater the longevity and the lower the risk for one, all-cause mortality, and two, chronic disease. I, absolutely, it is It is not necessary. And to just throw in one more little caveat, turns out 90% of the people that choke to death every year choke to death on meat. And that's because, again, we don't have pharynx and esophagus and swallowing mechanism that's designed to handle animal tissue. If you actually look at the way carnivores eat. They don't chew. They simply slice off a hunk of meat, bone, hooves, hide, and they swallow it. And they have such intense corrosive digestive acids that they can dissolve this stuff with no problem. All herbivores, on the other hand, have to chew their food. And the reason is that herbivores, such as humans, we have enzymes in our saliva that as we chew the food, it starts the process of digestion as we're chewing. And humans, we have an enzyme called salivary amyloid which is designed to break down uh, plant starch. And as we're chewing, that process uh, starts and it's completed as the uh, food travels through our digestive tract. So the fact that we chew is the sine qua non of being a plant eater. According to current theories of the evolution of Homo sapiens, Homo sapiens are felt to be, that is modern humans, to be about a 100,000 years old. The earliest known evidence for the use of mammals for their milk is as old as 6,000 years in certain areas of the world. But in Western European countries, it's about 3,000 years that we have good evidence for the use of dairy foods. But the point that I was making is that human beings, again, according to evolutionary theory, existed for almost 100,000 years before we started using other mammals for their milk. So clearly, we don't need it. And it's it's really absurd to argue that any mammal needs to drink the milk of another species. That's That's just absurd on its face. Milk is a secretion that female mammals make that is designed to feed their babies. Nature, God, whoever you want to pull into this conversation, never intended that as adults we would be drinking our own milk, let alone the milk of another species. The way I look at it, I'm sometimes even reluctant to call milk food. I mean, it's a material that we can ingest. In my mind, it's like using some recreational drug. I mean, it's not necessary. Yeah, it's optional. But it's not something 
that you have to do or that you need to do. And humans do not have to drink cow's milk or goat's milk or sheep's milk. And it doesn't supply any nutrient that we can't get elsewhere in our diet. Worldwide, the vast majority of humans are lactose intolerant, as are essentially all mammals. The sugar that is in mammal's milk is called lactose. But what lactose is, it's what's called a disaccharide, meaning it's a two individual sugar molecules that are linked together into one molecule. Our bodies can only absorb single sugar molecules. So in order to be able to absorb lactose, you have to make an enzyme called lactase that actually splits the lactose molecule into its two individual sugars, glucose and galactose. All infant mammals make tons of lactase because, of course, they have to be able to absorb the lactose in their mother's milk. But as mammals mature and are weaned, their bodies stop making this enzyme. And it makes sense because enzymes are very large proteins that require a lot of intracellular machinery to actually create and then position in the digestive tract so that they can do their function. It makes no sense to continue making an enzyme that you really don't need. And since all mammals except humans stop drinking milk once they're weaned, all mammals stop making lactase as they become mature. That is also true for the vast majority of people around the world. The only people who have become what's called lactase persisters, and that is they have a genetic mutation that causes them to continue making lactase throughout their lifetime, are people who hail from an area in the world where the practice of dairying using the milk of other mammals for food was common. In Northern European countries, there's a very high percentage of people who are lactase persisters. And there's also certain East African tribes that have traditionally had a sort of pastoral economy where they used milk and they are also um, lactase persisters. But everybody else, just floridly lactose intolerant. And that's really emphasized in this country when you look at people of color. The statistics are as follows. 95% of Asians are lactose intolerant, 74% of African Americans, 70% to 73% of Native Americans, and 53% of Hispanic Americans are lactose intolerant, as opposed to Caucasian Americans, where lactose intolerance is only about 33%. Amongst African Americans, if there hadn't been the sort of rapes of slave women that caused the mixing of European genes with West African genes, prevalence of lactose intolerance would be even higher than the 74%. But clearly, the majority of people of color are lactose intolerant. Again, that's true around the world. And that is why I helped co-author a paper where I talked about institutional racism in the U.S. Dietary Guidelines because the U.S. Dietary Guidelines, which are put out by the Department of Agriculture, not Health and Human Services, recommends that people eat dairy foods. And they recommend this knowing that if people of color consume these foods, they're going to get sick. But what's worse is that there really is no benefit to consuming dairy foods. Now, the number one reason dairy foods are touted is supposedly they are the best source of calcium. But the problem is that dairy calcium, in the majority of studies that have been done on it, has not been shown to be protective against osteoporosis, which is weakening of the bones, or against bone fractures, such as hip fractures or vertebral fractures. One or two studies that suggest there may be some benefit, but the vast majority of the studies do not show benefit. And in fact, Harvard Mercer's Health Studies show that the women who consume the most milk had the highest risk of hip fracture. And if you look worldwide at dairy consumption, dairy consumption is highest in those countries that have the highest incidence of osteoporosis and weak bones. So there is 
no real benefit for consuming dairy foods if your goal is calcium consumption. What's even worse is that whole milk is very high in saturated fat. It has proteins that have been shown to be linked to a number of cancers, and particularly in this country where the cows are artificially impregnated and treated with a variety of hormones, including growth hormone and so forth. The milk and dairy foods tend to be very, very high in estrogens, growth hormone, which increases the level of something in called insulin-like growth factor, or IGF. Studies have shown that humans that have higher levels of IGF have a higher risk of the metabolic syndrome, chronic disease, but particularly cancers. The American Academy of Pediatrics recommends human babies not be exposed to cow's milk until they are more than a year of age, because there are many, many, many studies showing that early exposure to cow's milk for human infants increases their risk of iron deficiency anemia because of the proteins in the milk, but it also markedly increases their risk of developing type 1 diabetes. And type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune phenomenon where the body attacks the insulin-producing cells in the pancreas and kills them. Part of what happens is babies are born with an incomplete set of digestive enzymes. Proteins are digested by being cleaved by a suite of about five different digestive enzymes. If you have all five of those enzymes, you can then take any protein and break it down into all of its individual amino acids. One of the things that babies are supposed to get from their mothers is passive immunity, meaning that they are supposed to absorb antibodies in the mother's milk so that that will help them ward off diseases that their immature immune systems haven't had a chance to react to. And the reason that they're able to do that is because they don't have all of their protein digesting enzymes. So instead of breaking proteins up into individual amino acids, babies break the proteins up into large fragments and they are able to absorb protein fragments. That allows them to absorb their mother's antibodies intact. And certain genetically susceptible individuals, when they are exposed to bovine serum albumin, it's chopped up into protein fragments that when they're absorbed, the body recognizes this as a non-human protein fragment and it makes antibodies against those cow's milk protein fragments. In certain instances, again, in these genetically susceptible individuals, if they have these antibodies to the cow's milk protein, if they get certain kinds of infections, those proteins will then attack their insulin producing cells and kill them. And they end up with type 1 diabetes. That's why it's recommended that you don't expose human infants to cow's milk until they have all of their digestive enzymes, and that means they have to be older than a year old. Very good reasons for never exposing your child to cow's milk protein. Then there's also the fact that cow's milk has been associated with exacerbation of problems like asthma and respiratory issues. That may sound odd to people. Well, you know, why would milk cause respiratory problems. Any infant mammal comes into the world with a very immature immune system. So its mother's milk has to do several things. One, stimulate it to grow. Two, also confer passive immunity while the baby's immune system is starting to rev up. But it also stimulates that baby's immune system. And when you think about the way that our respiratory tree keeps itself clean, it's through the production of mucus. Our entire respiratory tree is lined with mucus, which is designed to trap dust, bacteria, fungi, and not permit it to get down into the lungs. And we either cough it up and spit it out, or we swallow it 
where the bugs are killed by digestive enzymes. And so one of the things that milk does is it helps rev up the production of mucus. Well, that's fine if you're a baby mammal and you need to get your uh, immune system jump started. But if you are an adult or a child who already has asthma or other respiratory problems like chronic sinusitis, that extra mucus production then causes you to have more asthma exacerbations, makes you more prone to getting respiratory infections and sinusitis. So that's yet another reason to avoid it. And there's also studies that link the consumption of dairy to acne in teenagers. That's probably through overstimulating their immune system, which causes them to have these breakouts. The data on the link between cow's milk and type 1 diabetes in children and iron deficiency anemia is solid and strong. I think that when you actually look at the preponderance of studies, most of them do suggest that there is a link between dairy consumption and ovarian cancer. Now, again, there are some studies that failed to show a link, but there's no study that shows that dairy foods are protective against uh, ovarian cancer. So what you have is the possibility that consuming dairy foods raises the risk for ovarian cancer. And no, the the link is not definitive, but there is evidence that there is a causal link. Why should women risk their lives ingesting material they don't need when there's a chance it could cause one of the most lethal cancers that can strike a woman? The vast majority of women who develop ovarian cancer die from it because by the time they become aware of it, it is already spread and it is very difficult to treat. You have a possible link between the consumption of dairy foods and a very lethal cancer on one hand and no real benefit on the other. So why would you play Russian roulette with your health? So that's, again, a good reason that I think women should avoid consuming dairy foods. In the United States, African-American men have more than twice the prevalence of prostate cancer compared to Caucasian men. And when African-American men develop prostate cancer, it is more aggressive, it is harder to treat, and it kills us much more quickly and much more often than the the, uh, varieties that strike white men. There are very strong links between dairy consumption and prostate cancer. You know, my mother named me after her one and only brother, and my uncle died from metastatic prostate cancer. So this is something that hits me, I mean, you know, right, right in the chest. Not only did it kill my uncle, But I have several good friends who've actually died in their 50s from prostate cancer. So this is no joke and it's nothing to play with. And in fact, if you read the China study, Dr. Colin Campbell showed that dairy protein was strongly linked to liver cancer in children. And it's been linked to a number of other problems, including multiple sclerosis and other other issues. So dairy protein, not only is it not necessary, it should be avoided. To suggest that someone should drink milk to get their phosphorus, potassium, and magnesium is like suggesting that someone inhaled cigarette smoke to get oxygen. Yeah, there's oxygen in it, but there's a whole lot of other stuff that will harm you. And the same thing is true for the dairy food. Magnesium, phosphorus, potassium are widely available in all sorts of plant foods that have all sorts of nutrients and phytochemicals and other things that are good for you. You do not need to suck on the teeth of a cow to try to get phosphorus. That's just the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. What we call vitamin D is a compound that chemically is like 125-dihydroxycalciferol. It is a substance that our bodies will make when we have skin exposed to sunlight. The only reason that hormone started being called a vitamin was because early on, the dairy industry began 
adding it to milk to make the consumption of dairy foods more attractive. So they put it in the milk and then they called it vitamin D. That would be like me putting testosterone in milk and calling it vitamin T. It's not a vitamin. It's a hormone. And it's a hormone, as I said, that all humans make when we have skin exposed to sunlight for significant periods of time. Granted, there is a problem for humans living in more northerly latitudes because of the temperate weather and the longer winters. We tend to be covered up and we tend to be indoors. So we don't get the sun exposure we need to make adequate amounts of the Calciferol. But you can get so-called vitamin D supplement. You don't have to drink milk to get it. You can go to your drugstore and get your little bottle, uh, vitamin D3, take it every day, and you're fine. And or if you are able to be out in the sun where you have your arms and, and torso exposed for at least a half an hour to an hour a day, depending on the latitude, you'll make your own. You don't need to ingest this unnatural compound just because they poured something in it to try and sucker you into getting it. Big selling point for the dairy industry and when they try to push their products on people is that, oh, it has calcium, it has calcium. Studies have shown that when a person drinks a glass of milk, they actually lose more calcium in their urine than they're able to absorb from the glass of milk. There's something called fractional absorption of a nutrient. Humans can only absorb 23 to 24% of the calcium that's in a given amount of milk. So that means that, yeah, you might have 300 milligrams of calcium in a glass of milk, but you're not going to absorb it all. You're only going to absorb somewhere between 17 to 23 percent of it. And in fact, years ago, there was an attempt by the dairy industry to produce a protein-reduced version of milk in an effort to decrease the amount of calcium loss associated with drinking milk. That product, I don't think, ever made it to market, but it was a definite attempt on their part. And that shows that they recognize that the amount of protein in milk causes problems in terms of uh, calcium balance because we end up losing more calcium than we can gain. Cows don't drink milk, but there's tons of calcium in their milk. Where does it come from? It comes from the stuff they eat, the green leafy vegetables. If you take a six foot human being and take all of the flesh off, just take his skeleton, the entire skeleton in a six foot human being will weigh about 25 pounds. A full set of antlers on a mature bull moose weighs between 80 to 85 pounds. And, and they're made out of solid bone. And the animal produces it within three months eating nothing but green plants. There's tons of calcium in plants. It is a giant myth that you can only find calcium in dairy foods. Calcium is widely distributed throughout the plant kingdom and readily available. And it comes along with a whole bunch of other things that are actually healthy for you as opposed to, you know, protein that damages your body and saturated fat that clogs your arteries and, and the hormones and the other things that are in dairy foods. So you do not need dairy foods to get your calcium. You can get it directly from the plants, just like every other large mammal on this planet. So I hope you guys enjoyed this episode of This Is Bananas. To learn more about this episode, check out the show notes over at bananiac.com. That's B-A-N-A-N-I-A-C.com. If you're looking for easy and nutritious plant-based recipes to make at home, you can download my ebook, Bananiac Simple Vegan Recipes, from my website as well. It includes 25 of my favorite whole food plant-based recipes that I make and eat every day and will hopefully help you eat more whole plant 
plant-based meals as well. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please rate it wherever you're listening to it. Share this episode with someone who could benefit from it. Leave a comment with your thoughts and subscribe to This Is Bananas as well as my YouTube channel, Bananiac, which you can find at youtube.com slash Bananiac. This helps me become more discoverable and ultimately reach more people with my work. If you'd like to donate, please visit patreon.com slash Bananiac. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast and supporting the one-man band that I am. Until next time, everyone, take care of yourself, spread the word, and we'll see you in the next episode. Peace.